Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Theo Grazide. I'm an elder in training uh, and a church council member at large. Um, I have the privilege today of giving you all the message. Uh, we're in a sermon series titled The Unbelievable Gift. And today's sermon title is called The Prince of Peace. So today we're going to be talking about the unbelievable gift of peace that we've, given, that we've been given by God in Christ. So we're going to go to God's Word to begin. Uh, today we're in Isaiah chapter 9 like we have been for a number of weeks, and it's verses 1 through 7. Uh, I would invite you guys uh, to follow along on the paper notes, but we don't have any, so I apologize for that. Um, but you can follow along if you have the YouVersion Bible app. Um, also, if you brought along your hard copy of the Bible, again, we're in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her, her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading of it. So we've all heard this verse in this series, and probably dozens of times at each Advent season, but sometimes we can graze over sections of it. We can skip over the surface and really fail to penetrate the depths. Chris gave us a warning last week that we're going to be really digging in deep, and, and I'm not giving you guys a break this week either. So put on your thinking caps. Um, there's a number of reasons why the Prince of Peace is such an unbelievable gift. In Isaiah 43.10, God calls his people to know and to believe and to understand that he is our God. And so today I need each of you all to cast off any, any worldly understandings of peace that you have that you may be holding on to so that you can know and believe and understand the unbelievable gift of Christ. And so what I'm hoping to convince each of you guys today is that peace is not just a life that's absent of conflict, but rather it includes a life full of God's promises and their fulfillment in Christ. So we're going to start simple and then we'll go more complex. We're going to start by talking about the Prince of Peace as it relates to God's promise. We're going to need a good working definition for the Prince of Peace, so we'll talk about what peace is and what peace is not. And we'll talk about the Prince of Peace and how he's the means and mediator of that peace. And finally, we're going to discuss how ourselves and how others can have that peace 
now and forever. So if you guys want an outline in the back of your head, we have peace and promise, means and mediator, now and forever. So the reason I stressed a minute ago that we all need to cast off our preconceptions about peace is that most of us, like me included, uh, have a wrong understanding of peace, and all of us have an incomplete understanding about what peace is. And, and so here's how I know. In Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so peace, God's peace surpasses all understanding. It's not just one person's understanding or another person's understanding. And that's not to say we can't experience it, or that we don't have some biblical understanding of it, but it is to say that none of us fully know it, not yet. So each of us today came in with an incomplete or a wrong understanding of peace, and we have to get that peace from somewhere. So where do we get it? Jesus says that the world has given us our own version of peace. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. So the world gives us a version of peace, and Christ says, I'm going to give you something different. I don't give peace like the world gives peace. So the idea of Christ's peace is likely different than whatever the vision is of peace that you have inside of your mind. So again, I'm asking you guys, please cast off any preconceptions that you have as we dive into God's word and attempt to unveil what peace is so that we can believe the unbelievable. So I know it's a little bit long of an introduction, so let's start with what peace is not. I'm going to start that way because I'm hoping to show you, like it showed me, that we need to let go of this worldly understanding. Let's look at what Christ says about peace on earth. In Luke 12, 51, he says, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Isn't that kind of strange? The Prince of Peace comes to earth and he says, I don't come to give peace. What's that about? Well, he's talking here about a worldly understanding of peace, a, a national peace where everybody just kind of gets along. Um, we'll, I'll elaborate on this verse a little bit, but I kind of want to leave this in the back of your minds. I, I don't want this to confuse you, but I want to illustrate a point. Biblical peace here is not just an absence of conflict. And so keep that in the back of your mind. I want it to challenge you. I want it to strip loose the preconceptions that you have, and then that way we can plant a new seed of peace. So we actually have additional proof that peace is, isn't just an absence of conflict. In fact, in Judges 3, the Israelites sin against God, and he gives them into the hand of the surrounding nations. Yet he gives Israel's like, uh, Israel champions like Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar to war against the surrounding nations to free his people from sin. And there are times of peace, of 40 and 80 years at a time. So peace is biblically accompanied by conflict here, specifically conflict against sin. What I want you to be mindful of is the idea that as we purge the sin from among us, including but not limited to our own sin, a time of lack of conflict can be fulfilled, but peace doesn't exclude the conflict against sin as well. It's like when Christ talks about a little yeast leavens the lump. We have to purge all the sin from ourselves and from our church and even the nation so that we can have that lack of conflict. And we're, we're talking spiritual warfare here, right? I don't mean violently. But there is a state of transition from unholy to holy, and the entirety of the process 
is included in the concept of biblical peace. So again, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that verse means later, but let's keep moving on. So some of you guys might be saying to yourselves, well, if peace includes conflict, then I'm free to just go out and pick a fight. But God's peace is not quarrelsome. James discusses what causes fights and quarrels among us and why we're at war within ourselves. James 4, 1 through 3, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. And we don't have to look at this, that section. It's not murdering necessarily in the American cultural sense. All you have to do is hate your brother to commit the act of murder. So just a quick aside there. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So just a quick aside, Christians, please don't justify what you want by saying you, you do not have because you do not ask. That's not what the verse is saying. God isn't some genie. Most of us ask wrongly, and so we don't receive. What James means to tell us is that we wrongly spend the gifts that we are given on our passions, and they cause the fighting among us. Ask yourself if the thing that you want, that you're asking for, is causing fighting. You're probably asking wrongly. If we were meant to fight and quarrel against one another, James would say that we righteously spend our gifts on our passions, but he didn't. And so the kind of quarreling that results from our passions being at war within us is not a biblical vision of peace either. So if peace allows for division and excludes quarrels of the flesh, what exactly is it? The, we, the reason that you guys might be confused like I was is that I believe that peace is simply a feeling. Or maybe it's a, just an absence of conflict. While I don't think that peace excludes those feelings or the conflict, it includes so much more. There's so much more richness and fullness to be had in a biblical definition of peace than what the world offers. We've sort of become emaciated as Christians, drinking non-fact when there's a rich cream that's right there within reach, right in our Bible. So let, please let me clarify. So we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to give you guys 30 seconds. 30 seconds. What we're going to do is picture in your mind what peace looks like. What is your, when you close your eyes and you think, this is my vision of what a peaceful situation looks like, I want you to think of it, and then I want you to, if you can, quickly turn and tell the person next to you. Again, what does your vision of peace look like? Tell it to the person. 30 seconds. I'm going to start my stopwatch, all right? You guys ready? Go. Then I'll speak up at once. All right, I'm going to stop you all there. I used to have this teacher, and he would, he would stand there quietly and awkwardly, and everyone would, all, the, all the kids, they'd be all talking and stuff, and then he'd be like, I can stand here all day long. You guys are the one paying the tuition. So anyway, I don't mind a little awkward silence. It's fine to me. So, okay, so I imagine one of 
two things when I think of peace. I think of either my own little private garden with like a little water effect or a waterfall or something, or my own little slice of sunshine on a private beach, maybe with a cool breeze and a cold drink. And uh, both of those mental images have to have like some comfy lawn chair and, and maybe some of my favorite people in the background. Who imagined something like that? Was there anyone that, that, no, I guess I'm unique in that way. All right. You may have imagined maybe something like a warm fireplace, uh, your favorite recliner, favorite book or TV show, or in Chris's case, sitting in an ice box with your favorite book. Yeah. Um, now, who, who have you described when you thought, when you closed your mind, who have you described an empty room with nothing in it, no doors, no windows, and nothing but hard surfaces. Anybody? Good, I'm glad, because I would not go to your house for dinner if that's what you were thinking. <laughs> but that's what we call peace. If peace is just an absence of conflict, it's like taking our favorite mental image of peace with nothing in it. It's like a room with, with no furniture. But that's not peace. That's actually worse than a jail cell. At least a jail cell has a bed and a toilet. So the concept of biblical peace includes the absence of conflict, but there are other pieces of furniture in the room as well. So we've talked a lot about what biblical peace is not. But what is peace? Once we have a good biblical definition of peace, we can talk about the Prince of Peace. So what we'll do is we'll start by talking about the Jewish word for, the, um, for peace in Isaiah 9, shalom. So the ancient Jews um, didn't just send each other off uh, asking for an absence of conflict, but rather they used it as someone's manner of coming or going in the form of a blessing as you sent someone off. So in both cases, there was a state of transition, someone going or someone being sent off with a blessing. And that could be described as shalom, or this blessing of shalom could be given that their life be full and not lacking as you sent them off. If someone was to leave in shalom, it would describe that they had peace and it could simultaneously be a blessing of peace. In fact, the root word of the word shalom is shalom, and it has the connotation to be free from harm or injury, which has implications of health and safety, and there could also be a sense of reciprocal friendship, and most importantly, there is this sense of fulfillment. So I'm painting with sort of a broad brush here. So you were blessing the other person's life to be full, or even that their debts be paid, or that their life would attain to perfection. And so here's this sort of complex word that the ancient Jews would wish into one another's lives that it would be filled with something. There's a sense that the word shalom is a pursuit of state of completion as much as it is actually being in that state. Peace is as much about what we are as it is about what we are becoming, present and future tense. The question that we need to answer if we want to understand peace is, what are we becoming? What is coming to completion in shalom, in the transition? So a lot of us have heard Isaiah 9, uh, 6 through 7, a lot of times throughout the years, and we've been going through it in the series. And you guys have heard the wonderful titles like Prince of Peace to God's coming Messiah, but a lot of times we miss the connection to his promises. In verse 7a in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his, the Messiah's government, and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. 
So why the throne of David? Why is there peace on the throne of David? There are lots of thrones in the world. Why that one? There's a throne in the Oval Office, yet the Bible doesn't mention that one. The throne of David is the throne that God promises over and over to the Jews which will yield the coming Messiah. Scripture is full of this connection to peace of God's promises. We see it in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, that should remind us of Christ, and he shall speak peace to the nations, his rule shall be to the ends of the earth. And so we see these promises repeated over and over again. We just read it in Isaiah 70. We'll, um, we, you can find it in Micah 5.5 5, and Ephesians 2.14, which we'll go through in a minute. And that's just to name a few. And so it's no stretch to say that when the ancient Jews, and when it was recorded in the Tanakh, when they used the word shalom, it means to have a, full, a life full of God's promises, and each of those promises are fulfilled in the coming Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons we, we don't picture an empty room and when we close our eyes, and it's one of the reasons that we shouldn't think of peace and let it exist in our minds solely as an absence of conflict. Peace should exist in our minds as a pursuit of and as a coming to completion or fullness of Christ. Because nothing on earth can give you that. Not as the world gives does Christ give us peace. No nation can promise peace like Jesus can. America and all of its worldly splendor and riches and glory can't offer you the same peace. It lacks the proper throne, the throne of David. And as we learned last week, that David is the root and shoot of Christ. So how do we know? I mean, we, we have some references here that, uh, of, of someone coming in on a donkey, but how do we know uh, that that the scriptures are fulfilled in Christ. We're going to read now from the New Testament in John 7:42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? The anointed one, the Christ, will come from Bethlehem and sit on the throne of David. Here we see the scriptures fulfilled. Here we see the real peace start to emerge. In the verse following 742, Jesus' own words actually create a division among the people. Christ had a habit of saying a lot of crazy things. He said statements that were heretical if they weren't true. It's one of the reasons that we have, by the way, that Christ can't just be a good teacher like the Buddhist belief. Christ taught that he was God, and it caused division. He was either a bad teacher or he's God. He can't be both. And no, I am not suggesting that his teachings were wrong. The division that Christ's words caused by speaking the truth of his fulfillment of the scriptures in John 7 is what Christ was talking about when he said he's coming not for peace but for division. You see, Christ knew to, that to leave someone with tidings of an absence of conflict was to reject the biblical idea of peace. And we all have a sense of this. I don't send Paige off, and you guys don't send your loved ones off saying, I hope you don't get in a fight today. That's not what we say. I might say, I hope that your drive is safe. I hope that your work is fruitful, that your day is filled with joy, something along those things. But I want her day to be full, and only Christ is in control of those things. He wants our lives to be filled with himself, which is the only true peace that exists, and he recognized that would cause division. Some people would accept the truth of who he claimed to be and they would have peace 
and others would reject the Prince of Peace. And it caused brother to turn against brother. It's a sad thing to see one brother or sister offering peace and the other rejecting it and choosing division. Your life can't simply be empty of conflict. It has to be full of something else. It doesn't matter what the something else is. If it's not Christ, it is division, and it is not peace. So now that we have a working definition of peace, which is to be filled with Christ, we can look at the word prince. The, the word shalom is preceded by the noun sar, which is the Hebrew word for prince. But it's, it's the same word that Hebrews actually used for a military general or a chief. And it's also the word that they used to describe the military commander of the angels. So Christ here is not some dignitary or some ambassador who's really good at appeasing evil governments and he can play, make them play nice and maybe obtain some temporary state of peace. That's not who he is. His name here might as well be the general of peace. The reason that you can't be filled with something else other than Christ and still have peace is because of this word, sar. The word prince here is to say that only God has the authority to declare who has peace and who doesn't have peace. In Luke 2.14, we see more of the story. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. And then we see the converse is true in Isaiah 57, 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So peace only comes to those with whom God is pleased, and God is pleased with those who are filled with Christ. Just a clarifying point here, it's not one or the other. Being filled with Jesus is being filled with peace, and it pleases God to give you peace. Both things are true. Peace is both a supernatural gift and it is the nature and person of Jesus Christ. God gives you Christ so that you might know peace and is thus pleased to give you peace in Christ. You see how perpetual the nature of this gift is that our eternal Father gave us? So how do we get this peace? What's the means of peace? What separates you and I from the, the ones who are holding division in their heart? In Ephesians 2, we have a description which is similar to the dividing walls of holiness in the old Jewish temple. Those walls divided holiness and hostility. If you found yourself on the correct side of the wall, you be, could be considered holy, and if you were on the wrong side of the wall, you could encounter hostility. There was an inscription on the outer courtyard um, telling non-Jews that they would only have themselves to blame for their death if they passed into the inner courtyard. Similarly, the Holy of Holy Places had a curtain to keep anyone other than the high priest out so that they wouldn't die in the presence of a holy God. So there were these separations that separated the, the peace of God from those that weren't the people of God. But in verse 14, Paul writes to the Ephesian church to show how uh, people separated from, a Christ by, from Christ by a wall of hostility are reunited to himself. This is Ephesians 2, 14. I'm just going to read the first section here and, and pause. For he, Christ, is, is the subject here, himself is our peace. I wouldn't be doing you guys any favors if I told you that Christ, um, by simply telling you that Christ fulfilled God's promises of peace. The, this verse is why I said a minute ago that peace is the nature and person of Christ. It is true, he did fulfill the scriptures, but he's more than just a connection to God's promises. 
He is the fulfillment. He is the person of God's promises throughout Scripture. So for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh on the cross. Christ died so that we would no longer have any barrier to experience the peace that he had to offer. He sent his disciples to the corners of the earth to proclaim the good news that Christ crucified has reconciled us to God himself, making one man in place of two, so making peace. Our sin no longer has to separate us from God. But Christ has made that which was too one again so that we can experience the unity of peace that defies understanding. He goes near and he goes far and he calls everyone to experience peace like the world has never seen and like the world can never offer. This is the message of the gospel that while we were hostile to God, separated from him, he was pleased to fill us with Christ, with peace. Not that we earned, but the peace that was offered by the blood of Christ. And all we have to do is believe that what he's saying is true. So I'm begging you guys now, if you guys are sitting there and you have division in your heart, whatever it is, accept the free gift of eternal peace offered to you by Christ's infinitely valuable sacrifice. Saved or unsaved, we all have barriers we put in front of Christ. Don't let the old walls of hostility stop you from accepting that gift. Christ was beaten and mocked and spat upon and tortured to death on the cross so that he could break those walls down to make two back into one. And so I'm begging you guys, don't build those back up in hostility. So one might think that becoming the means of our peace was enough. One might think that Christ died and rose and ascended to heaven and gave God a high five and started playing some Xbox. But that's not what he did. I know, it's surprising. Uh, Christ is now mediating on our behalf as a part of a new covenant. The ancient Jews had a good conception of peace, but they lived under an old covenant of work. They, works. They didn't fully know what Christ was coming to do. They understood the fullness of God was to fill their lives with good works of the law. But in Hebrews 8, 4 through 6, we see there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, meaning that the law, which was a shadow, didn't burn as brightly as the heavenly things. And then in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. If you read the chapter, Hebrews 8 sets up the argument that the new covenant of grace is better than the old covenants of works because its promises are better. Remember, we can't have peace disconnected from God's promise. Peace and promise are connected throughout Scripture, and so the promise of the new covenant is better, therefore it stands to reason that the peace is better too. One reason the new covenant is better is because we see the ancient Jews didn't, when they didn't continue in their old covenant, it says God showed no concern for them. 
We see it evidenced throughout the Old Testament as God gives them over to sin and destruction. But the new covenant fills us with Christ himself. It empowers us to be like him. And when we do stumble, Christ is in heaven. He's mediating on our behalf so we don't get disregarded like the Old, covenant, uh, Old Testament Jews who are punished by God's wrath. We have better peace knowing that we are supernaturally filled with Christ who is the means and mediator of a better covenant of grace and continue to experience that grace through his ongoing mediation on our behalf. In other words, Christians have greater peace in the assurance that we will be safe from God's wrath. How much better is that than hoping to avoid an argument? That's true peace. So now we know what peace is, and we know what peace is not, and we know that Christ is the Prince of Peace as he is the means and mediator of that peace. But we still need to know, what does it mean for us? What does peace look like now? How does peace affect us? What does it do and what does it look like in the real world? Let's look at a call to peace for each of us in Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There are two related ideas here. The word strive for comes from the Greek word dioko, which also means to pursue eagerly, and it's also used uh, to persecute. It's the same word. It can mean to harass or to trouble someone. There's this sense in which striving and peace appear to be antonyms until we remember that peace is not just an absence of conflict, but rather a fullness of Christ. And then there's this related idea of striving for holiness, As we read in Isaiah 57, the truth here is that the person sitting next to you cannot have peace until both of you is filled with Christ, despite what the quote-unquote spiritually enlightened gurus of today might say about a person discovering their own truth or their own path or their own purpose. There is only one way to peace, and that's to be filled with Christ. How can two things growing apart not have tension. Allowing ourselves to give in to a type of conflict resolution that says, I'm okay with you not being filled with Christ is like sitting in a garden with a pile of manure between you and your friend. You might never talk about it, but neither one of you is at peace with it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and drive by Harris Ranch on a hot day. You'll know exactly what I mean. So notice here that we want to strive for peace strive for or persecute for peace. Notice I didn't say persecute people in conflict. Persecute what is causing the conflict, which is sin. It's why striving for peace and striving for holiness are related in the statement. Once you both see the Lord and focus on him, the two of you can grow together without tension in the same direction. So shovel the sin out of their lives and invite them to do the same for you. I didn't mention it uh, I didn't act, wasn't intending to include it, but there's this um, idea I was discussing with uh, Gainel before the service. Um, it's in Jeremiah. I forget exactly where it's at. And it's about taking your um, spears and beating them into pruning hooks, taking your old way of warfare and, and converting it into something that can trim the dead branches. And I think that's just such a great picture here. 
because we, it's, we don't get peace until we start trimming off what's dead among us. So here's the result. John 14, 27, we'll read again. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so we have what a lot of us might consider to be peace in the end. Let not your hearts be troubled or afraid. There's a peace that comes with following our Creator. When you know that you're acting in accordance with God's will and you're persecuting your own sin and helping others to do the same when we're filled with Christ and we know that we're acting in accordance with the will of God, which is to say that we're being like Christ, And when we look at our God who always accomplishes his will, who's all-powerful and has created an eternity of peace for us, even the thought of death pales in comparison with God's eternal peace. And so for all the conflict between that's less than death, how much more so can we have peace? Our hearts ought not to be troubled or afraid. And the converse is true as well. When our hearts are troubled, when they're afraid, we show ourselves not acting in faith but in fear. We, we believe that God can't live up to his promises and his peace is not with us. So peace now looks like faith that God will supernaturally fill you with the Spirit of Christ in conflict and in everyday life. And we act out of that faith. So I expect at this point most of you are tracking and nodding your head, heads either in agreement or at least in silent agreement. Uh, we know intellectually that pursuing the fullness of Christ is the way to peace, but fighting for sin the rest of our lives probably doesn't feel like peace. There's residual dissatisfaction in persecuting sin, a tension that's deeply unsettling to us in our souls. The reason for the dissatisfaction is that peace now is not what peace forever looks like. You see, we were never created to fight sin. That's not to say that we ought not to fight sin, but we were created to be sinless. Each of us was meant to image God as Christ did. We see in the Garden of Eden in Genesis the first example of perfect peace in the Bible. And when sin entered the world, as Adam and Eve blamed God and each other for their own sin, God says to Adam as a result, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or active opposition between you and the woman, between you and your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As a direct consequence of our sin, we have opposition to peace. By the way, Adam had already blamed Eve and God for his sin, so God can't be blamed for the opposition. It's not just the fact that enmity is a curse from God, but rather the enmity had already occurred as a direct consequence of that sin. The Garden of Eden before sin was introduced is a biblical picture of what life should be like in perfect peace. And the world will once again return to that state of peace. When I mentioned earlier that Christ would create division, You remember how his title is just as easily translated as the general of peace? In the end times, there will be a time of great conflict, but it's so that God's promises can be fulfilled and peace forever can be restored. Revelation 19.11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Christ identifies himself uh, actually a few chapters early as the one called Faithful and True in Revelation 3. And then in Revelation 19 and 20, it discusses in detail how Satan and those opposed to God will be cast into the lake of fire. But it's only after the, uh, the conflict that our eternal peace is brought to fullness. Let's read a biblical description of a time without sin that we can all look forward to this season. I think we all need that this year. It's only two chapters after our passage in Isaiah 9. We're reading from Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the viper's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So once we're filled with the knowledge of the Lord, we will once again have eternal peace. It'll be secured. Until then, let the striving for peace unsettle us. Let it stir us up to good works. Striving for peace is a reminder of a number of things. I have at least five things that striving for peace is a reminder of here. One is that we were not meant for sin, but rather for peace. Two, our God gifted us the means and the mediator to overcome sin and strive for peace in his Son. Three, Christ is the gift of peace. Four, our conflict today reminds us of the final conflict by which our eternal peace is secured. And five, eternal peace is coming. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. On the day that Christ returns, he will bring his good work of peace in us to completion, to shalom. Let's thank God for his unbelievable gift. Let's pray. Father God, how deeply our souls long for reconciliation. How deeply we long for perfect relational harmony we recognize that our sin acts out in discord, both horizontally towards one another and vertically towards you. Fill us with your promise, which is the promise of your Son. Bring his love to completion in our hearts. Father, fill us with the boldness of the truth and love to strive for peace with one another. Give us fellowship that desires more than emptiness, but rather that each of our cups run over with living water. Grant us the desire to do so and the ability to achieve your great end. In your name we pray these things. Amen.